American Christians are struggling with disappointment in the American church. The last two years of pandemic response and racial tension and political strife have been difficult and divisive in the culture, and the church in America has struggled as well. We've watched as local churches and Christians have responded, and we're left somewhat disappointed. And then we look to the future, a little doubtful, perhaps, of how the church will respond to the next set of challenges that God may bring to us. Now, this problem is not just out there in the church somewhere. This describes some of you this morning as well. Corinth is a Roman colony where many cultures and religions and philosophies mingle. The Apostle Paul steps into the city of Corinth around 50 AD along with a couple from Rome, Priscilla and Aquila, and a man named Apollos. And together they labor for about 18 months until the church in Corinth is planted. Now this morally permissive culture is hostile to the Corinthian church. And over time, the church begins to fracture. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church about three years later from the city of Ephesus. And Paul leans in to address the divisions he's heard about in the Corinthian church. And his driving concern is to stir up Corinthian Christian affections for the gospel. And by doing so, calling them to set aside their divisions and pursue the advancement of the gospel in their generation. By the time we get to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is confronting an understanding that's developed in the Corinthian church that though Christ rose from the dead, Christians won't. And Paul leans in to address this falsehood. And for the next four weeks, we'll lean into his argument. This week it begins in our heads, where Paul makes the case that the resurrection happened. But by the time we get to the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's argument is a soaring glimpse of emotion. The main idea in these first 11 verses is that God's grace empowers us to boldly hold fast to the gospel. God's grace empowers us to boldly hold fast to the gospel. God's grace, in other words, transforms us. We go from an alienated, separated group of people, estranged from God and estranged from one another, to a gathered family of saints. When we trust Christ, everything changes. The power that raised Christ from the dead lives and works in the life of the church. And that fact delivers hope in any situation no matter how impossible or intractable that situation may seem. Are you discouraged this morning by your own sin as you reflect on earlier today or this week? Or are you beat down by the sin of another person around you? Or are you fearful of living life in a world that's so opposed to the gospel that we proclaim? Or are you weary of a body weighed down by sickness and pain? Or is your hope in the church flagging a bit? Is your heart doubting the church's ability to faithfully follow Christ and serve him in this generation? Let the grace of God boldly cause you to hold fast to the gospel. Look at verses 1 through 2, where we find the command to hold fast to the gospel. Now, 
Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to brethren, to brothers and sisters in Christ who live in the city of Corinth. His purpose here in chapter 15 at the beginning is to make known to them or to remind them of the gospel. The gospel at this point simply means good news. Paul will further define it in verses 3 through 8. But look with me at chapter 15, verses 1 through the beginning of 2. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, or remind you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are being saved. Paul makes four statements that clarify what gospel he's talking about, what good news he's talking about. The first, he says, this is the gospel that I preached to you. This is the good news that I came to Corinth to proclaim to you. I left where I was and I came to Corinth to proclaim and herald and declare and announce this gospel to you along with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. I desperately contended for this gospel in households and I defended it in the market. I experienced opposition for my preaching. This was strange to Corinthian ears. These tones and these notes sounded so foolish to the Corinthians. But I risked my life and I invested my time to proclaim it to you. And Paul would say it was worth every sacrifice. Preaching is not meant to entertain or motivate or educate a crowd. That is not the purpose for preaching the word. Preaching stewards handles rightly, and heralds or proclaims God's truth according to God's word and strengthened by God's spirit. Preaching passionately sets forth the greatness of God and the goodness of God. Preaching is worship. That's calling on all who hear to worship along with the preacher, this good and great God who's revealed himself in his word. And that's what Paul does in Corinth. He's preached the gospel to them. And this is the gospel which you also received. Many of their neighbors, most of their neighbors, rejected Paul's preaching, but these Christians in these churches received his word. But this gospel isn't just in their past. By this gospel, Paul says, you, are, you also stand. It presently strengthens you. You take your stand upon this good news. By its power, you stand firm and steadfast in the world. You're not tossed about. You are anchored by God's word, by this gospel, against the winds and waves of false teaching. And you stand anchored by this gospel against the persecution and of false teachers. And finally, by this gospel, literally, you are being saved. This gospel brings healing and preservation and rescue. To be sure, there is a point in time when we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. But this gospel increasingly defines us. This gospel continues to work in our hearts. Sin is constantly loosening its grip. Like a rising tide in the ocean, righteousness reigns and hope rises in the hearts of God's people. From one degree of glory to another, we are being rescued from the clutches of sin to Christ. You are being saved. Do you see what the gospel does? 
It is constantly on the move from person to person. But unlike a virus, this gospel brings sight and health and freedom and forgiveness and precious lasting hope to all who believe. But notice the end of verse 2. By which you are being saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Paul places a condition. If. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. And because Paul chooses to include this condition, he introduces the possibility that all may not hold fast to the gospel. In other words, there will be some who seemed to receive Paul's preaching, appeared to stand in the gospel, and showed signs of being saved. But in the end, they don't end up holding fast. And this is strengthened by the last clause, unless you believed in vain. Vain simply means without cause or pointless. It was pointless belief. It was purposeless because it didn't last. Ultimately, it didn't hold on. An action that produces no result. And so Paul has a category for someone in the Corinthian church who shows signs of belief, but ultimately withers and falls away from the gospel. Well, Jesus has the same category. In Matthew 13, he tells the parable of the sower, a fictional story intended to make a point. And this story is about a person who scatters or sows seed. And the seed is the proclaimed gospel. And the one who sows the seed is a Christian who shares or declares the gospel. And Jesus uses four kinds of ground to describe different ways that human beings interact with this seed as it's proclaimed. Here's Matthew 13, 19, as Jesus is explaining the parable to the disciples. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path, the first soil. As for the, what was sown on the rocky ground, the second soil, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, the third kind of soil, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. You see what Jesus is doing? He's giving us a category for people who seem to interact with the gospel. By outward appearance, they seem to be into this. They seem to be thinking along these lines. They look as if they're making some progress in the faith, but then something happens. In the first case, they might be hard soil. And though the gospel is preached, Satan drives them away from the truth. Or they might be rocky soil. They endure for a bit, then tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word and they fall away. Or they might be thorny soil, where the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of riches, the treasures of this world, choke out the word. This is what I think Paul is drawing upon in 1 Corinthians 15 too. It's a warning to hold fast to the gospel. He's mainly offering encouragement. Look what Christ has done. Look how God has saved you. 
But he also includes a warning. If you hold fast to the word. Keep standing on it. Keep relying upon it. Keep proclaiming it. Look at Matthew 13, 23. Jesus finishes. As for what was sown on good soil, the fourth kind. This is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Do you see how easy it would be to let pride grow in our hearts? If, if we assume that we merit God's grace, or if we think we can be the good soil in our own strength, then we've misunderstood Jesus' point. The call of the New Testament is that there is no good soil. There is no one good. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one righteous. Not even one. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We're blinded by the God of this age. We're enslaved to the passions of the flesh. And that's every one of us before Christ saves us. There's no good soil Well, there's no good soil unless the divine gardener nurtures and cultivates it. The Spirit of God works in our hearts. He tills and he fertilizes so that when we hear the gospel proclaimed, we believe. This is good news. I want this. I want to belong to this. I want to make this my life. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. I didn't make myself good soil. The Spirit worked in my heart so that the gospel rang true. Now, because the last few years have applied such tremendous pressure to all of us, we would be unwise to jump past Paul's warning here as if it applies only to another church or only to another Christian. In fact, you may be thinking of a person right now whose faith seems to have shipwrecked because of the waves and wind of the last two years. Meaningful community, honest relationships, committed friendships in the church, Regular worship, earnest evangelism are not optional if we are to be a vital witness for Christ in our generation. If we are to hold fast to the gospel, these ordinary practices of Christians are absolutely vital to our life together. It seems that almost every week, it happened again this morning, one of you comes and tells me this is the first time you've been in a church. Or the last couple of years and everything that's happened has pressed you back to church for the first time in a long time. This is a thrilling time to be a part of a local church. The Spirit is working in our city and in cities all across the world. The Spirit is working through your proclamation of the gospel, through your faithful witness throughout the week. And the Spirit is working as we gather collectively and worship the Lord on the Lord's day. We're bearing witness to the transformative power of God's grace in our lives. There is no trend in American culture that will slow this train. No evil force in the world can withstand the Spirit's work. 
in calling us out of darkness into life and in calling Christians to faithfulness and fidelity to the word that we say we believe. This is a call to hold fast to that gospel. And this is a life-defining gospel, as we'll see in verses 3 through 8. What is the gospel? We said it's good news, but even more fundamentally, it is the good news that Christ died and rose again. That Christ died for our sins, that he rose again to give us life. And in these five verses, Paul gives us four statements. Christ rose, Christ was buried, Christ, Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ rose, and Christ appeared. You can hang these five verses on those four words. Look at verse 3 of chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. For Paul, this is of first importance. There is no more fundamental fact that Paul wants the Corinthian church to remember. This is the gospel. This is the life-defining gospel. More than anything else, any information that you could come in contact with, this is of first importance. And in the first place, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And every word matters. Someone had to die if sinful people were to be reconciled with a holy God because the wages of sin is death. It couldn't be an animal because the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It has to be a person who dies. But it can't just be any person since all people have fallen short of God's glory. And so it must be a person who is innocent of sin by choice, meaning they don't choose sin, they're righteous. And by constraint, meaning they're not born of Adam, since all who are born in Adam are likewise in sin. And so it has to be Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the one promised in the Old Testament, who is truly God and truly human, who is born miraculously of a virgin, thereby avoiding Adam's sin, and who chooses righteousness every time, thereby being the innocent Savior we needed. Now, why does Jesus die? Not to be an example to others. Jesus dies with our record of debt hanging around his neck. And in his dying, Jesus absorbs our penalty for our sin. And he does it to fulfill scripture. Scripture that foreshadows and pictures the need for Christ to die. Think of the ram who dies for Isaac or the lambs who die in Egypt for the firstborns or the animals who die year after year in the sacrificial system that God gives to Moses. And the Bible also explicitly foreshadows this. In Isaiah 53, for example, surely he has borne our griefs and carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And having died, Jesus was buried, showing us that he actually died. His burial was proof of his death. This wasn't a gimmick. And then in triumph, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. As surely as he died, 
he rose in victory over our darkest, most threatening enemy. Death itself loses its sting because Christ is risen from the dead. And he does it according to the scriptures. Think of God's curse to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. A son of Eve's will, you will strike the heel of a son of Eve, but that one will crush your head. Or the psalmist who who looks to a time when God will not forsake their soul to Sheol, to the deep dark places. Or Hosea 6, 2, after two days he will revive us and on the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Jesus sees his resurrection in Jonah as well, the prophet. In Matthew 12, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And like his burial is proof that he died, the appearances are proof that he rose. And we get four of them. First, he appears to Peter, Cephas, and the twelve disciples. Then he appears to more than 500 people, probably on the mountain in Galilee, described in Matthew 28. And many of these 500 are still alive. You can go talk to them and talk to them about what they've seen. And then he appears to his brother James, who had already rejected him. And then the apostles, that is the disciples, plus probably James and Paul and a few others. And finally, Jesus appears to Paul himself on the road to Emmaus. We're not building our life on a myth or a legend. Paul wants us to see that the resurrection is a historical fact. And it's not like other resurrections. Jesus' resurrection is not like Lazarus's, for example. Lazarus who would die again. Now, Jesus' resurrection was a permanent resurrection to eternal life. And Paul will soon argue that because of his resurrection, we can count on our own. Kids and teens and adults, our world believes and says that our feelings define and create who we are. Feelings are not bad. Feelings help us relate to God how he intends for us to relate to him. This isn't an academic religion. This is a religion that makes sense in our heads, but also inflames our hearts and our feelings and our passions. But feelings don't create identity and feelings don't define identity. God's word is the eternal reality that stands outside of us and tells us who we are. God's word defines for us, because it's eternal and unchanging, who we are and how we live in this world that he has created. This gospel that Christ died for our sins and rose again to give us life is the life-defining gospel. You don't add to this gospel to your life. This gospel becomes your life. And it's a bountiful, glorious, full life. You live or die by this good news. It takes all of you or it doesn't have you. It is the pearl of great price. 
It is worth selling everything you own so that you have enough money to buy this field because in this field is the pearl of great price. That's the gospel. It's worth giving everything for. It rescues and transforms. It empowers and changes you. It's worth leaving houses and lands for. It's worth taking up your cross for. It's worth holding fast to. But we can't do that in our own strength. There are not, there's not enough strength in our hands to hold on to this gospel. We need to be transformed continually and strengthened by God's grace. And so the final point this morning is hold fast to the gospel empowered by grace. Why does Paul say in verse 8 that his birth was untimely? Literally that he was stillborn. Why does he say that? Look at verse 9 of chapter 15. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Paul says literally, I was born dead. Why? Because I'm the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. That's his line of reasoning in verse 8 and 9. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. In, in Luke chapter, in, in Acts chapter 8, Luke writes that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. He was putting them in chains and dragging them to Jerusalem. Paul's own sense of his actions captured in Galatians 1 is that he violently persecuted the church of Jesus. And Paul feels a lot of sorrow about his mistakes before he came to faith. He calls himself the chief sinner. But what changes for Paul? Does he transform himself into the good soil so that he can receive the gospel and bear fruit? Look at verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. See that? Some Corinthians will demonstrate that their so-called belief was vain. It was purposeless. But the grace of God did not prove vain. It accomplished what it intended to do. And so I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The gospel transforms Paul. It's God's grace that works in Paul's life. And God's grace is simply the outworking of his love. God loves us even when we are still dead in our trespasses and sins, and therefore God acts graciously toward us. Grace follows God's heart toward us, which is love. Grace is unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, but you get it. It transformed Paul from a sinner to a humble Christian. From thorny, rocky, shallow soil to fruitful soil. And notice the result. God's grace becomes the fuel in the engine of Paul's heart. Like poking a stick in a campfire. Paul stares at God's grace until his heart is inflamed with the gospel. Inflamed with joy and gratitude over what God has done to transform a sinner into an apostle. 
And that's why Paul can say he labored even more than the other apostles. In his own thinking, he was the worst, the least among the apostles. Therefore, he received the most grace from Christ. Therefore, he labored more than any of them because the grace had motivated him that much. The grace put that much fuel in his engine that he was able to earnestly run even more than the other apostles, but not by his own strength, but by the grace of God that was working in him. And that yielded bold faith in Paul, an unyielding commitment to the life-defining gospel, an unswerving pursuit of Jesus' purposes in the world, an unwavering willingness to suffer for the gospel. So Christian, has your heart grown cold to the gospel? We go through those seasons, don't we? Have you lost the passion in your walk with Christ? Are you haphazard about personal worship quietly in your home every day? Are you uncommitted, really, to the weekly gathering of God's people? Are you disconnected from Christian friendships? Or are those friendships thin? Are you nursing areas of secret sin? Are you weighed down by guilt? Are you avoiding evangelism? Is your prayer life completely dry or non-existent? Are you withholding giving to the mission of this church, to the church, and to the nations? If so, the solution is not to first exercise effort. If that's the position you're in this morning, don't first exercise effort. First, stare at the grace of God. Open your Bible and linger. Sit quietly in your home and sing. Read the Psalms until you can pray on your own feet. Stare at the grace of God until your heart is inflamed, like sticking the stick into the fire until the fire grows and swells. And then, once your heart is inflamed by God's grace, eagerly and earnestly labor for the gospel. The stakes are too high for Christians to be distracted on the sidelines. There's a work that God is doing in the world today. And for us to be vital in our generation we need to be motivated to hold fast to the gospel by his grace. Now, one of the reasons, I think, that the American church is struggling with division is because we can't figure out what it looks like to follow Christ faithfully in a culture that opposes the gospel so strongly. Really, this is the first generation of the church that needs to deal with that in our context Following Christ now costs Christians something. And local church families are striving to be vital and earnest witnesses in our neighborhoods and in our cities and in the world. And we're trying to figure this out. And we're disagreeing with one another about how to do it. But though this may feel new to us, Jesus' people have been in this situation since he returned to the Father in heaven. Carl Truman is a professor at Grove City College. He just released a book called A Strange New World. And in a podcast this week, he said this. What has been the historical norm for the American church is the theological exception. 
What has been normal for the American church is the theological exception. And here's what he means. For most of our history, Christianity and culture have tracked pretty closely. It's a general statement, but they've tracked pretty closely. Christianity has had an influence on our culture, and largely that's been really good. He continues, By and large, there's been very little tension between the church and the culture. But I believe there is very little in the New Testament that would have led us to expect that. He finishes here. The model of Christianity that we see in the New Testament is in many ways antithetical, that is confrontational, to the broader culture. Truman is arguing that the calm that we've experienced in our context isn't the New Testament norm. It is the exception to the New Testament norm. And therefore, the increasing reality that is our generation is closer to the picture we get in the New Testament. So we need only to look back to God's Word, the epistles and Acts, and see how the church responded to the situation that we are increasingly finding ourselves in. But that doesn't mean that what we're walking through or walking toward will be easy. As the pressure mounts against Jesus' people for following him, we will experience the opposition that Jesus experienced and that he promised us. So then what's our strategy? What's our strategy for proclaiming Christ to the nations? What's our game plan for heralding Christ in our city? How will we show in this generation the love and greatness of God through our life together as a church family? How will we put the unity of the body on display so that we make much of Christ? We need to let the grace of God instruct us if we're going to be a vital witness to Christ in our generation. We need to let God's grace instruct us toward humility. Since we were saved while we were still sinners. We were still his enemies when he saved us. That should produce a humble church. Humble in how we think of ourselves and humble as we think about other Christians as they try to make sense of a really hard situation. And humble towards the world. Longing to see them join us in worshiping Christ. And God's grace should instruct us by stiffening our resolve to hold fast to the gospel. We have the hope that the world needs. It is found here because we are articulating that authoritative, eternal, unchanging truth. And to the degree that we are committed to that truth, we are able to share the hope that we have with the world. God's grace is what makes our witness vital. We must remain distinct from the world out of love for the world. Here's Romans 8 where I'll end. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Do you feel that truth? 
The power that raised Jesus from the dead eternally is the same power that lives within you, Christian. Is the same power that is working in the church. And so there is no situation that is intractable and impossible. Whether it's sin in your heart or sin in the church or the task of taking the gospel to the nations, there is no task that is impossible because the Spirit is at work in the church. Through the ordinary faithfulness of Christians who get up every morning and long to treasure Christ. Hold fast to the gospel by his grace, boldly. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the example that you did give us. Coming to rescue us. Sending your spirit to make us alive. Sending us into the world. Proclaiming your gospel, empowered by your spirit. And we look to you this morning. We behold the wonder, wondrous mystery of your grace. Amen.